Hello, and welcome to Sights and Sirens Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Sights. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Sights, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Sights and Sirens, an emergency preparedness training company. Sights and Sirens is a National American Heart Association training center and EMS training company that specializes in NREMT exam prep. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. So I put the kilt back on and I took all the balloon animals and I just left. Seems like a weird bachelor party. I think it was just a miscommunication. Yeah, no kidding. Hey guys, welcome to the Sights and Sirens Back to Basics podcast, a podcast where my ER brother, Dr. Fancy Pants, and me, the lowly paramedic nurse, talk about stuff in the field. So uh, today, our sponsor, Chris, why don't you take it away with our sponsor? Yeah, so today we are excited. Our sponsor is Clearview Media. Clearview Media is a uh, Michigan video production company um, that offers super high quality video production. Actually, we have used uh, Clearview Media for all of our video content. If you're listening to this, this is also being video recorded. Uh, take a look at it. it. I mean, they really partner with you to make your vision come to light. I mean, when Jason and I kind of started our journey of figuring out how we wanted to get into, you know, video education, uh, Clearview Media was there to really help us uh, bring that vision to light and really has surprised us every bit along the way with just more than we could have asked for. So check out their website. If you're looking for video production, uh, clearviewmedia.com. Uh, we want to thank them obviously for everything they've done for us. It's been, it's been amazing. They can make this face look good. Imagine what they can do for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, all right, well, let's jump in today. I want to talk about, um, chest pain with arrhythmias. Okay. All right. We talk a lot in EMS about chest pain, treating chest pain, whether you're an EMT, a specialist or a, or a medic, you know, STEMIs and NSTEMIs and angina and all this stuff. We talk about chest pain as its own thing. And we talk about arrhythmias as their own thing, but we don't really touch too much on what happens if I have an arrhythmia and I'm having chest pain at the same time. Do I pick one algorithm? Do I go down both pathways? Am I thinking this is a heart attack? Am I thinking it's it's caused because of the arrhythmia, right? So talking about assessment, getting a little bit deeper in it and, and looking at what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Mm-hmm. Is it the chest pain that came first? Is it the arrhythmia that came first? Which do I treat first? Um, do I, do I treat both or do I just treat one? Sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So have you had any experiences where you've bumped into, and just like an example, a tachycardia where the patient has chest pain too? Yeah, of course. I mean, this happens, you know, I feel like almost every shift where you have, and, and like I said, we're talking about chest pain and arrhythmias today, but it, it really kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of things like where patients present with one thing. And another, I mean, usually, right, they present right. with more than one thing and, and you have you're and this is the art of medicine, right? You're stuck with, well, you know, w- is one causing the other? Are they two things that are happening at the same time? Are they interrelated in a way that I don't understand? Um, but yeah, specifically with chest pain and arrhythmias, whether it be a high heart rate or a tachyarrhythmia or a low heart weight with a bradyarrhythmia, bradycardia, tachycardia. Um yeah, we see that a lot, obviously. I mean, you do too in the field, which is why we're talking about it. So um, I think that is kind of what we want to touch on today. It sounds like you want to see, like, we want to give people a clear cut, take it back to basics. 
what do we do? Right. Let's make it simple. Let's because I think sometimes we we can get confused. It can get complicated. You got multiple things going on or do we? And even if we do, is there a protocol or a, or a systematic way we can follow to, to look into that? Well, I think the education regarding this a lot of times, it's a little bit our own fault, especially people like us. Right. We want to keep things simple. We want to give people things like algorithms like ACLS and BLS. Right. We're following these algorithms. Fancy way of just saying we're, we're fo- you know, following a treatment modality for one specific symptom or symptom or issue or condition. And we're getting down to the nitty gritty. We're treating that condition. The problem is, is when we can't apply that to all medicine, like you said, there's constantly, there's multiple body systems that are involved. So when I start my training out, we start with basic life support, right? And we learn that if someone goes down, we do CPR and that's what we do. And that's all we have to worry about. And that's great when we're trying to learn something as, as spooky as CPR and, and something as hefty as that is, Hey, all you got to remember is do CPR. It doesn't work that way with every type of symptom though. It's not like when I come in, it's like, this is definitely, you know, an allergic reaction and that's all I have to worry about. Or this person's, you know, only has right-sided heart failure. So I'm going to treat it this way, right? It's always a plethora of conditions, uh, uh, comorbidities, things like that. Like we have to deal with a lot all at once. So I think we do. And I think that there's there, we see this happen two different ways, right? There's always like the two extremes. So one is you run into people and it's not just in EMS, you do see it in emergency medicine, medicine in general, family medicine. I mean, everything where they basically like you have abdominal pain. This is what I do. Right. right. Even in, like I said, for you, it's a protocol for me. It's like, these are the labs I order when I see someone with a headache period, every single time that can be dangerous, right? Because like you said, patients don't fall into that same category. Every headache's a little bit different. Every patient's a little bit different. Their comorbidities are different. Or we fall into this. I, I see providers fall into this category of they don't have any rhyme or reason to what they're doing. Like it every could, time it could is, be anything. Right. So let's just. Well, yeah. Right. And every time is completely different. Like this right. belly pain, I'm going to order these things and try these things. But this belly pain, and then there's no rhyme or reason. So right. you really have to. And this is kind of what we're talking about with chest pain and tachyarrhythmias today or just arrhythmias today is how do you find this middle ground of like, yes, there's protocols and yes, there's pathways and um, what am I trying to say? Algorithms yeah. that that we should follow. But sometimes it's never that cut and dry. Right. And right. we always te- like when we, when we teach ACLS. So when you and I teach ACLS or pals, we always say there's nothing wrong in medicine from breaking from an algorithm or protocol. If you're following that algorithm protocol to a T first. Right. Like the, the, right. they are there for a reason. We should use those if we rely only on them, though we're going to miss things. Right. You know, when you described um, people having specific ways, every time I see belly pain, I'm going to do this, right? That's a normal way to learn something. It's a normal way to absorb information and use experiential, you know, history to to define what you're going to do. What you kind of described there is it was described to me in, in my medic programs and coming through my education as cookbook medicine, right? Mm-hmm. I flip to the page, it's abdominal pain. I'm going to follow that recipe, right? And we hear all the time, like, don't become a cookbook medic. You, you shouldn't come become a cookbook medic because you need to know that it could be on this page too. And it could be on this other page, right? Mm-hmm. could be all over the place. What I say a lot of times in education though, is if you want to learn how to be a good cook, you got to follow the recipes first, right? So I don't want you guys to think as we talk about this today, that you shouldn't be learning the basics of how to treat individual conditions first and having these modalities Absolutely. and having these treatment plans, right? Algorithms are important. Having an idea of how you're going to treat a certain condition is absolutely essential for any medic, EMT, specialist, nurse, doctor, anyone out there, right? Any right. provider out there. 
what we need to do, though, is to have full comprehension of, of what's going on with our patient is understand that some of these recipes are going to kind of mix mix into each other. Right. So I have this modality treatment modality and I have this treatment modality. How can they come together with multiple conditions? What's going to affect what and how can I treat appropriately? Right. Yeah. Definitely. And this is going to the core of this is going to be good assessment. Right. Once I check the boxes and I know someone has chest pain. OK, they're complaining of chest pain. I need to make sure that I don't get frozen up with, okay, it's heart attack and that's all I'm working on, right? We need to always have this index of suspicion that there could be other things happening as well, right? And this is tough. You know, in our education, we learn to kind of be Sherlock Holmeses with how they give us, you know, scenarios. Like even in training, you know, I'd sit down with someone like you and you'd give me a scenario. And in my mind, I'm like going through my assessment. I'm just trying to figure out like what it is. And it's always one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's this. Okay. I got it. It's sickle cell anemia. I win. Right. Right. right, right but right, right. if I don't know what, what happens with, with sickle cell, what other conditions can affect that. And then all the treatments for all of those things, I didn't really learn a whole lot besides assessment. Yeah. Right. So it's, well, I think s- that's a good example too, because like Sherlock Holmes and Watson, like Watson was a doctor and I'm a doctor. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes yep. kind of had a mental instability. Wait, what? No, never mind. <laughs> Such a joke. All right. So it wasn't a mental instability. All right. He's I mean, a genius. Okay, I mean, there's well, a difference. Yeah. I, I could see how weak-minded people would. Tomato. <laughs> tomato, tomato. All right. So the first kind of scenario case I want to present is uh, I, I was made aware of a case where a patient, and we see this a lot. This can happen a lot, where a patient is in unstable SVT, supraventricular tachycardia. So they're in a, a tachyarrhythmia. Their heart rate is going too fast. And they're also presenting with chest pain. Okay. The danger here is zeroing in on the chest pain and only treating that, right? So if you could talk a little bit about like what's going on in the body when I have a tachyarrhythmia and why that can lead then to chest pain and ischemia. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, so tachycardia, so heart rate's greater than 100, right? So normal heart rate is 60 to 100. That's how we define it. Anything above 100, we say is a is a tachycardia, right? So our heart rate going up is, is a very normal thing. We want our heart rate to go up when we're exerting ourselves. We want the heart to pump more blood so that we can circulate more oxygen so we can get more energy. It's why when we exercise, our heart rate goes up. It's why we want our heart rate to go up, right? It conditions the heart to be able to handle, you know, more blood flow and increase oxygen and that sort of thing. What happens is, is that just like in everything, there are these parameters in our bodies that if we get beyond them, they start to fall apart, right? Everything is about this, like trying to keep an equilibrium and there's, there's extremes to each side, right? Like our heart rate can get low when we're sleeping, our heart rate can go high when we're exercising. If we get beyond those norms, though, the body can no longer, you know, compensate for that and we have a problem. Well, right. And I think there's a little bit of a difference between being tachycardic because of even compensation, Mm -hmm. right? So like if I'm bleeding out, my heart rate initially is going to go up to make up for a drop in blood pressure. That's a normal reaction. When we talk about arrhythmias, it's not just my heart's tacking away because it's doing the right thing. No, right? exactly. And it's that's like what, something's wrong with the electricity. Right. No, exactly. And that's the thing. So the so that's that's like that's the normal parameters. In a tachyarrhythmia, there is a, a dysfunction, like you said, in in the electrical activity of our heart that's making it go super fast. Um because of that electrical problem, not because it's compensating. Be, and, and when I say super fast, I mean much, fu- much further beyond the parameters of a normal just heart rate being high. Right. You're not so going like, to put yourself into SVT running on a treadmill, yeah. right? Unless 
something, something serious is going on with your heart. Right, exactly. So so when we talk about like an SVT or a tachyarrhythmia, we're talking about heart rates much farther beyond just a normal like compensating tachycardia. So this is rates in the 200s, 220s. When the heart is going that fast, it can't supply oxygen, right? It's going so fast that blood is is barely being filled and squeezed out. And it that basically causes it not to be able to pick up oxygen. So we actually end up getting lack of oxygen to tissues and things like that. When we get lack of oxygen to something like the heart, it's the heart starts to feel that as chest pain. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why it's like in, in a case like the one you're describing, someone who goes into an SVT, a heart rate that's in the 200s, way too fast. The body can't supply oxygen. The heart doesn't get oxygen. They start to have chest pain. Right. When we talk about chest pain or acute coronary syndromes is kind of our blanket term for chest pains. Right. We're talking about cardiac ischemia. So to, to take it back to basics, a cardiac ischemia is the lack of oxygen. Right. If that goes on for too long, that tissue will become necrotic. It will die. Once heart muscle dies, it's dead for good. You're not going to get it back, right? So that infarct or that that necrosis, that death of tissue is referred to as infarct. That's what a heart attack is, right? So we a lot of times show up in the acute phases of ischemia where we're in danger of that lack of oxygen turning into infarct, and that's when we can act. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that infarct isn't always from blockage of tissue, right? It's not, it's not a acute coronary syndrome in the sense that the reason my heart has a lack of oxygen is because of a clot or blockage. So I need to get them to a hospital to get a stent in, or I need to get them to a hospital to get clot busters, things like that, that will dissolve the, that blockage. That's not what's causing the ischemia, right? The lack of oxygen of the heart right now, the chest pain that they're experiencing is because of this pathophysiology of the arrhythmia. Right. Right. So the, again, so like you said, and, and you look at AHA guidelines, right? Or you look at these general guidelines, you have acute coronary syndrome pathway, which like when we say acute coronary syndrome, the way we see that in the field or in the that's chest pain, chest right? Pain like, I mean, we just assume all Absolutely. chest pain is acute coronary syndrome until we prove otherwise. So chest pain protocol, and then we have tachycard, tachyarrhythmia or, you know, protocols. So in this case, which one do you treat? Right. Do you treat both? Do you only treat one or so? So, dis- so and I want to I want to break down both of the protocols a little bit just to show you or both of the treatment modalities, you know, it, anywhere where you have a protocol that's going to follow general guidelines for the treatment modality. So when we're when we're talking about ACS, we give oxygen, right? Good treatment. Absolutely. It's a lack of oxygen to the heart. So we give oxygen. We give aspirin. Aspirin is an antiplatelet. It makes those platelets less sticky. This prevents further clots from happening and smooths the throat, the smooths out the flow around the clot. We give nitro, which opens up the vessels and supplies more oxygen to the heart. And then we'll consider something like morphine or fentanyl, an analgesic to calm the patient down and reduce the nerves to reduce the workload on the heart. And also sometimes in the case of morphine, also create some vasodilation or open those vessels up like nitro does. Right. That being said, if my ischemia is happening because of an arrhythmia, a tachyarrhythmia, my heart's going too fast. Does aspirin really make sense in that scenario? Not really when we think about it as its own thing, right? If this it was is, only a tachyarrhythmia causing chest pain, aspirin right. wouldn't do anything, right? Aspirin's an antiplatelet. You're saying that the arrhythmia is causing the heart's the beating too fast, right? right? So it's so just not getting enough blood in it, right? So this is where I think we can get into trouble with the cookbook medicine, right? We show up on scene, an EMT or a medic shows up on scene, and you're telling me that you have chest pain. 
Without a good assessment to recognize that your pulse is tacking at 220, I might just go down that treatment pathway and give you oxygen, nitro, aspirin. Now, are those things going to help? Possibly, but I'm not really treating the underlying condition. What's causing your chest pain is a tachyarrhythmia, right? So first and foremost, good assessment has to take place, and we have to always be suspicious of something else going on. Once we kind of narrow things down, we we also need to, to broaden a little bit and think, okay, what else can be involved, yeah. right? So it's very important for us to keep that index of suspicion all the time. When we see the tachycardias, treatment for tachycardia, well, why don't you just review what's treatment for tachycardia for a, a tachyarrhythmia? So, and, and so that's what I just want to, I want that caveat there. So like someone who's having an acute coronary syndrome who has chest pain will have a most likely a high heart rate. Like when you're in pain, your body is compensating and like for that heart rate. Again, we're talking about tachyarrhythmias. We're talking about arrhythmia. So either that it's not a, it's not a regular heartbeat. It's an irregular heartbeat, like an AFib or something like that. Or it's just going so fast that it's beyond those normal parameters, which is yeah. what we're talking about, like in an SVT. It's an electrical problem in the heart, right? right? It, it, it was caused by an electrical issue. Right. It wasn't. So what can get tough, too, is sometimes if I'm having a heart attack, there's stress on my heart. Now that electrical system is stressed. Right. And what can happen with, with lack of oxygen to that electrical system? Sometimes I go into things like tachyarrhythmia. So, again, right. it's the chicken before the egg situation. Do I think one's causing the other? Do I think the other one's causing the other? So right. how do we kind of let's just review tachycardia treatment yeah. and go over that. And then we'll, we'll kind of talk about the nuanced assessment. Sure. So based on AHA guidelines, we, we typically use AHA guidelines, right? Based on AHA guidelines, the tachyarrhythmia pathway is you assess someone who has a tachyarrhythmia. If they are unstable, meaning that they their blood pressure is low, they're not mentating well, we have an electrical problem. We need to fix it with electricity. Right. So an unstable patient with that kind of thing gets an electrical cardioversion. Right. We, we refer to this concept as Edison before medicine in an unstable patient, someone who's unstable, which we usually define as someone with low blood pressure. Right. right. It, it's a nuanced assessment of, of what stability. Well, I'm sure we'll have several episodes where we talk about stabi- stability yeah. and defining it. But when we talk about an unstable patient, we're usually talking about um a hypotension, right? A, a low blood pressure. If the patient's unstable, we lean towards electrical treatment, mm-hmm. right? The more drastic treatment. Edison before medicine in an unstable patient. Right, exactly. So again, if the patient is stable, which like, like you said, it, it can kind of be a little nuanced, like what is stability? But in, in terms of like blood pressure, if their blood pressure is still normal and their, you know, mentation, they're mentating well and that sort of thing, we can try medicine. So in this case, if it's a tachyarrhythmia, we would do a medication called adenosine, right? Mm-hmm. So adenosine is an antiarrhythmic medication. It specifically goes in and blocks the AV nose, but it goes in and affects the electrical pathway, mm-hmm. which is what tries to reset that so that the body can start going at a normal heart rate again. There's also the option if, if I if I showed up and you weren't having chest pain or you were just kind of having palpitations and I checked your heart rate or hooked you up to an EKG and I saw a narrow complexed rhythm that, that was tachycardic, I could also ask you to bear down or do something like that to try to slow that heart rate down. Only when you're very stable, right? Mm-hmm, we're not yeah, going to yeah. really waste our time with it if, if you're unstable. Um, 
What's interesting, though, is when we talk about stability and what makes someone stable versus unstable, one of our criteria is always, is there a major organ involved Mm -hmm. that's ischemic, right? So if I have signs like an altered mentation, like you mentioned. Signs of ischemia. So lack of, so ischemia would be that lack of oxygen. Do I have signs of ischemia to the brain, which would be someone who's confused? Or do I have signs of ischemia to the heart, right? Which would present as chest pain. Exactly. So in this, in our kind of made up scenario, I'm sure we've both seen this Mm -hmm. in the field too, but- you know, in this scenario, we have someone who's presenting with chest pain and we recognize that they're in a tachyarrhythmia. We're going to call that an unstable chest pain. Right. And we should start getting that guy ready for cardioversion, right? For shocking that heart. Yeah. It's not a defibrillation. It's a little different. You know, we're going to sync it up. We're going to aim before we shoot, basically. Right. So we're going to synchronize cardiovert that patient to deal with the underlying issue, which is an electrical abnormality in the heart, which is causing their chest pain. Right. And I would say that they like... You know, because this happens all the time. So we we typically define instability with blood pressure for better or for worse in, in a lot of cases. So a lot of times, even if someone had chest pain, you'll see like medics or you'll see doctors even try adenosine first before they cardiovert. Right. And part of the reason for that. I mean, so but you're not wrong in the sense that like based on the algorithm, based on the AHA guidelines, an unstable patient is someone who has signs of ischemia. Chest pain can be a sign of ischemia. If you wanted to cardioavert that person, you absolutely could. The problem with cardioversion, as you know, is that it's an electrical shock to the chest. So those patients typically we try to sedate them a little bit. So like, and then like, you know, that can maybe put them at a little bit of risk. So, right. so if, if someone in that situation was going to try adenosine, I wouldn't fault them for that. But if they were said, hey, no, based on this algorithm, I'm going to cardioavert them. I'm going to shock them. That's perfectly appropriate. Again, that, that does follow the algorithm perfectly fine. Right. And then the idea in this case is that if we can correct that tachycardia, if we can reset that rhythm and we can get them, whether it's through drugs or through shocking, we reset that rhythm. What's going to start happening with that chest pain? Well, now that we've restored a normal cardiac rhythm, we should get plenty of oxygen flowing to the heart. We Mm -hmm. should get a normal amount of fluid getting to the heart, right? Filling the heart up. And that chest pain should be relieved, right? So we solved both problems with one treatment modality because we had a good assessment and understanding that we didn't just jump down the road of chest pain. And I'll tell you, man, like... EMS, like sometimes I feel like EMS is just chest pain protocol and like STEMIs, sure, right? Like you yeah. go to trainings and it's like, you want to hear about STEMIs? Like I'm, I'm done hearing about STEMIs, right? So it's very easy for us to just jump down that, like everyone I go on, it's got to be a STEMI. It must be, they got chest pain. It's got to be a STEMI. We're going on a STEMI, call STEMI, get 12 lead, let's go, right? That's why we get a 12 lead. That's why we get an EKG so we can catch things like tachycardias. But it's pretty easy with our culture, I think, to really you know, get tunnel vision when we see chest pain instead of looking at the wider picture. And that's thing. That's something I was thinking about when you were, when you were speaking on that is that, well, next, what I want you to talk about though, is that like, we probably should be treating both. Absolutely. But, but when you're talking about the jumping down a pathway, there's two things I think of. So there, the one thing is, is that we do have a tendency to like, we're like, oh, chest pain, bam, I'm going to do this. Then we get a heart rate and we almost ignore that heart rate because we've decided that it's this. If it's still going on later, we'll deal with it sort of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah like, like we, like we, we, we don't take new evidence and this is just us being human, right? We don't take new evidence in once we've decided on something. Right. So kind of keeping an open mind, but also going along with that is that just because you started down a pathway doesn't mean with more information, you'd be like, oh, hey, 
I'm going to completely change what I'm doing now right. based on new evidence. And we see this happen all the time. Well, it's stubbornness, right? It's ego. It's right. like, well, it can, I made this decision earlier and I'm going to stick with it to the end because then it's going to look like I wasn't wrong. Well, exactly. And there's nothing wrong. And, like I said, and then no one is going to fault you if you say, hey, I was doing this. I was treating chest pain. And then I started thinking about it and I got this new evidence and I decided to go a different route. That's per- that's medicine. That's perfectly fine. But we do have this tendency to like pick one thing and stick with it. And some of it is just human nature and some of it might be stubbornness and ego. And it is what it is. But just I think making yourself aware of that tendency, even just the, that awareness, once you're aware of something, you can't become unaware of it. So once you're aware of that tendency that we have, I think it opens up this permission to say, okay, hold on. Like, am I ignoring things that I shouldn't be ignoring? And I've done it. I'm actually, we're talking about this. And I literally was thinking about a patient I had recently where like, I probably let their low heart rate go a little bit longer than I would have normally because I was trying to chase this other thing down. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, you just have to be very cognizant that that happens. Well, I think without getting too far off on a tangent, I think this is where working as a team is so important, right? Like Always. every medic, you know, it ha- has had the same training, but they might've had different experiences. And sometimes like, you know, Every medic, EMT, you know, specialist, anyone out there, like this is why teams of, you know, your paramedic and your EMT working together or your two medics working together, your two EMTs working together. Like sometimes it might feel like, I don't really know why I'm here. Like he's got it taken care of. He's taking the call, right? He's, he's got the treatments down and he knows what he's doing, but it's very important as a team member to kind of take a step back. If you're not directly involved in the treatment, maybe take a step back and, and observe the whole thing, right? Are we missing anything? It's very important to constantly have closed loop communication. Hey, Chris, I'm thinking this is chest pain. I'm going to go down this route. Does that sound good? Or do you think it could be something, you know, leave yourself open to have made a mistake or not have all the information. Cause then it allows you to say, you know what, but look at that tachycardia. Could it be this? Right. And sometimes it's obvious, but we still talk it out, right? I'm, I'm very, it drives the guys crazy sometimes, but I'm very communicative, you know, when we, when we're on calls, I'm constantly like saying, this is what we're doing. It might, maybe it's what we always do, but this is what we're doing. And these are the reasons we're doing it. Does anybody else have any suggestions? Right. Hey and that guys, can really I'm, help. I'm putting an aspirin in his mouth. Yeah, I just you really just want say. attention. <laughs> yeah, right. See me? So, do you see me? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so no, I, I think that's really important to rely on your Absolutely. team. And as a team member, realize that that's, that's why you're there. That's why you're a big asset. Maybe you're not super involved with, maybe you're not starting the IV. Maybe you're not hooking up the 12 lead. Maybe you're just tapping away to the tablet, but you can still have a broader picture and, and help your team out. I've experienced that as well. So like as a travel physician, I've done a lot of travel medicine. I've, I've worked at very rural, like very urban hospitals in cities. And I've worked at very rural hospitals. And a lot of times when you're working at a rural hospital, you're, you're it, you're the only doctor. And even just saying like, you're it is like, just not true. Right. Like, like I have nurses, I have medics, I have like other physicians I can call who may be sleeping at home, but I can still call them if I have to. And it's, it's such a relief when you start to see it as like, no, you, you do have a whole team. Like, there are plenty of times where like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I have no idea what's going on with this patient. And I'll ask the nurses what they think. Do you think I'm missing anything? Anything else you would do? I, I mean, everyone has seen and has experiences that other people don't. And, and it's, it's a relief to me in a lot of senses to be like, I'm not, it's not just me. It's not just this, you know, well, hopefully yeah. I'm right, you know, and I'm not sure. So yeah, I think that team-based approach is, is huge. And with interdisciplinary care, right? I learned a lot when I, when I 
I'm a paramedic. I'm also a nurse. When I when I started developing nursing skills, I really realized the advantage of being able to look at patient in, in a different way. Right, yeah. a nurse goes through a totally different type of training than a paramedic does. Mm-hmm. Totally different thing. But having the knowledge of both, you know, and, and being able to rely on nurses when you're a doc or EMTs when you're a doc yeah. or paramedics when you're a doc, just because you have a certification or a uh, experience, you know, an education that you view as maybe less than because it, it's not as long. Mm-hmm. If focuses in a different area and you can be an asset, right? Sometimes that's why we develop algorithms so that we know that we're checking the same boxes across the disciplines, right? Right. So when we're trying to avoid being those cookbook providers and we're looking at making our own recipe here, we need to be able to rely on everybody's experience and, and yeah. no matter how big or small, right? Sure. Sure. It's so, not like the doctor always has the, has the answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Like sometimes you just don't know. Well, I mean, like I'd say most of the time, like you need a lot of help. I mean, I think that's a little, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, you're not little, wrong. I just don't really want to know that. <laughs> Thanks we're a getting, lot. We're getting a little bit off topic. I want to move on now. So we've talked about one type of arrhythmia. Well, really quick before you do that, cause I know you want to talk about low heart rate, Brady rhythm yep. is next, but really quick. So we, we, I, we, we have a patient who's got a tachyarrhythmia and chest pain. And we're basically saying like, Hey, pay attention to the tachyarrhythmia. What about the chest pain though? Right. What do you so think? Like, let's do talk we do about the treatments or? for chest pain, right? We already went over these oxygen, aspirin, nitro, right. morphine, right? Are any of these things going to harm my treatment pathway on the other side? Well, oxygen's not right? right. I should be giving oxygen. Oxygen would be the first thing I should be doing for this patient, right? Hey, you got chest pain. I'm throwing you on oxygen. I can do that while setting up pads to cardio virtue at the same time. Right. right. I can do that while preparing adenosine or getting an IV to get the drug to treat a tachyarrhythmia ready, right? I can give aspirin. Is aspirin really going to hurt in this situation? No, there's nothing wrong with giving aspirin. The nitro and the morphine or the fentanyl or the whatever pain medication you're using, you might have to do a little bit of a deeper assessment, right? Look at their hypotension and things like that. But these things aren't going to necessarily hurt, right? right? And I would argue too that we, we say like what well, came first, the chicken or the egg, but also like there's really no way to know that they're not both happening, right? Like, because right. if, you, if you're someone who has plaque buildup in your heart and you go into a tachyarrhythmia, you're going to have chest pain because you're going to, so like you literally right. could have and both. So the aspirin might actually help a little bit to prevent that from breaking out. Right. You know, both so yeah, issues can be progressing at the same, at the same pace, you know? So I guess this isn't so much what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's making sure we pay attention to the egg and we pay attention to the chicken, whether we got them wrong or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is more expanding assessment and realizing, Hey, I've got multiple things I need to treat here. And that's why the problem's not going away. We don't want to be 30 minutes in where we've done our chest pain protocol and their chest pain hasn't gone away because we haven't paid attention, like you were saying, to this tachycardia because right. you were down that treatment modality, right? We can be doing both at the same time. We can be doing both. Right. And the bottom line is we need to be doing both treatments. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And then the second they said the second thing is though, so just as a high heart rate can basically cause ischemia, so can a low heart rate. Right? The, the high heart rate is going too fast. We're not pumping the blood effectively. We're not getting oxygen. If the heart rate's too low, obviously we're not circulating blood effectively enough. We're not getting oxygen reloading and that sort of thing. Right. And we'll concentrate on tachyarrhythmias and bradycardias for the sake of today's discussion. But you can have irregularities. You can have atrial fibrillations. Any type of electrical issue can cause you to have ischemia, right? Mm -hmm. As as well as things like trauma and and, and other stuff, right? So we're kind of concentrating on the cardiac aspect of this because it's two cardiac conditions. But just remember that chest pain is a sign of low oxygen in the heart. A lot of things can cause that. Sometimes it's not blockage in the heart. Just sometimes it's not. So 
Keep a wide index of suspicion. Look around. Assess your whole patient. Patient. Don't think that you solved the answer in the scenario like you did in school, and now you're good to go. Right? There's a lot of assessment that still needs to be done, mm-hmm. um, and that should be done congruently with treatment. So. Yeah. Um, with, when it comes to bradyarrhythmias, like you said, it's going too slow. So I, I'm not getting adequate oxygen. This can result in chest pain. It can result in ischemia and it can result in infarct. So let's just review quickly how we would treat a bradycardic patient with chest pain. So we're considering this patient to be unstable because of their chest pain. Right. Yeah. So again, it goes back to Edison before medicine, right? So if you have an unstable patient with a bradycardic rhythm, so bradyarrhythmia would be, so basically bradycardia, bradyarrhythmia work kind of saying the same thing. You can have heart blocks uh, that really make the heart rate go a lot lower. So anyway, a heart rate less than 60, assumingly causing chest pain, obviously is an unstable bradycardic rhythm. Those patients need to be paced for the most part. So we put pads on them and we shock the heart to make it pump is essentially. So again, Edison before medicine and these kind of unstable patients again. Atropine is a drug is our drug of choice for bradycardia treatments. Mm -hmm. Pacing is important too, though. We need to kind of be doing both. We can do both at the same time, but we should treat this bradycardia as well as the chest pain. Right. What I ran into recently was I had a paramedic come to me friend of mine doesn't work for my department, but, uh, and, and he said, I was really mixed up because I had a bradycardic patient who's complaining of chest pain. And he goes, and I know we're supposed to do things that speed that heart rate up, but if they've got chest pain and they have ischemic heart and I'm speeding the heart rate up, I give them atropine and they go, now they're going to, we're going to speed the heart rate up and stress the heart more and make the ischemia worse. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think we can kind of figure out the chicken before the egg. First of all, let's understand what pacing and atropine does, right? It restores the speed of your heart. Atropine is not like giving epinephrine or something that's going to like, it's not a, a chronotropic in the same way, right? It's not going to speed the heart rate up to crazy levels and tax your heart out. It's going to get your heart back to normal. You're not asking them to like snort cocaine. <laughs> right, just exactly. Exactly. So, and pacing, you're setting the pace, right? If the heart, you're not going to be overtaxing the heart when you pace somebody at 60 beats per minute because we set it to 60 beats per right. minute. It's not going to take off without you. You're like, it's just your, not going to Your happen, finger slips right? and you're like, it's 300. Right. And then, you know, so great, well, here, and here's what's kind of cool is you can kind of see the development of the skill as you go. I think, you know, maybe a, a, a baby provider would say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and just treat the chest pain. A maybe a little bit more advanced provider starts to recognize the bradycardia and starts to have those considerations. But if I give something, will it speed the heart up? But when we have more advanced provider that has a little bit of history and assessment and can really look at this and understands the pharmacodynamics and kinetics of the medications they're giving can realize, OK, He's having ischemia. That's serious. I need to treat that. I should go down that treatment. He's having bradycardia. That's serious. I need to treat that. In fact, it could be causing the ischemia or Mm -hmm. vice versa. I need to treat that. Those treatments may speed the heart up, but I know they're not going to tax the heart too much because I know how they work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So I think it's just good examples of widening that lens using, you know, comprehensive assessment and having a real good understanding of each of the treatments that you're doing and how they're going to affect each other. Perfect. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, I think like the, the summary here is, you know, bringing it back to basics. How do we treat chest pain, aspirin or oxygen, aspirin, nitro, maybe morphine, fentanyl, that sort of thing. Right. If we got someone with chest pain, we're going to go down that pathway, but we're also going to pay attention to, could there be something an arrhythmia causing that. If their heart rate's super high, do we need to cardiovert? Do we need to give them adenosine? If it's super low, do we need to pace them? Do we need to give them atropine? And taking both of those things in consideration with chest pain so we're not missing, you know, a bigger picture here, right. essentially, that sort of thing. So, cool. So, again, 
chicken, egg, who cares? Let's handle both of them, yeah, right? right? And that way we, we're going to cover our butts. Absolutely. So. Perfect. So, all right. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. Hopefully this was a, a kind of helpful review. Jason, I appreciate you bringing this uh, topic to us. Again, if you've got topics you want us to cover, shoot us an email, training at sightsandsirens.com. Uh, check out our website. Check uh, Like us on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on all your streaming podcasts that I don't even know which ones are out there. But we want to thank Clearview Media again. Uh, they're our sponsor today. Again, if you need some high quality video production for a project that you're working on and you're looking for someone to not just shoot the video, but to partner with you on it, uh, check out their website, clearviewmedia.com. Thank you guys. And we will see you next week. Stay sweet. Every time. (laughs) Hey guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're an EMT or medic student or an advanced EMT student or an instructor of those students, we have a program just for you. With Sights and Sirens NREMT prep program, you get video lectures over 15 hours of really vetted, great content to help you through your program and help you prepare for the test. Check it out at www.sightsandsirens.com.